Am I supposed to hear music? Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm oh. putting it in now. Right. Well, welcome everyone to another episode of Geology on the Rocks, your one-stop audio shop for all things rock and rocking out. A brief overview of this evening's episode will include our intros and hellos, followed by new news. The main discussion of this episode will continue with the theme of sedimentary basins, and we'll dive deep into the world of siliciclastic sandstones with regards to its composition <laughs> and classification. Between the bars of our main discussion, we present to you another Mineral Minute, and before signing off, we'll close things out with another that freaking rocks a big thank you to all of the listeners out there for allowing us to be played between your earballs both to new listeners and our returning listeners alike and for sp- spending your time with us each week if you would like to reach out to us whether it be for future episode ideas questions you are wanting answered or just to tell us about all the times that we have misspoke you can reach us at geologyotrgmail.com or you can find us on Instagram at Geology on the Rocks Podcast. It looks like things are squared away over here. Without further ado, to all of you over there, I am your host, James the Geologist. And I'm Brian Baggin. And this is Geology, Geology on, the, on Rock. the Rocks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, hey, man, how's it going? Hey, dude. Like, I, I every time we talk through the week, you send me a message, and then I'm like, oh, crap, I had something typed out to him, but I, <laughs> I didn't push send. It's just been one of those things. Like, it's been busy because of band stuff, really gearing up for yeah. tracking and all that. Yeah, so um, that sounds like crazy. So what, how long did you spend in the, the, I guess, recording on Saturday? You said something was like 11 like, hours? 11 hours or something yeah it was crazy like man uh, man so then you probably it, missed all of that crazy wind and the dust in the atmosphere it, it, it we it, saw it oh you saw like it we, yeah because we were like what's that sound and then like we could smell it on the inside oh could you really like yeah we we're like we didn't realize what it was until later but we were like what what's that dirt dirty smell yeah so i mean yeah. it, it, it it looked like it gave everything around at least over here like this gross sepia filter you know that <laughs> that, yeah. that, that, that yeah, brown exactly. it, oh but it was it it, it almost <laughs> reminded me of our iraq a little bit because it was just so oh, i don't yeah. know like everything was just like sand colored but yeah. i wonder <laughs> was there like a like a fire somewhere that i mean it's been windy oh, it's I not mean, always windy but I mean, it, I mean that it was like actual like like uh, I would think it's silt and stuff blowing in. That's yeah. what it seemed like to me. So I mean, it's probably good that we wear masks everywhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> but all right, hey, I'd like to present something to you, Mister Baggins. So right. how about a new weekly segment that I would like to call the Triple Junction? It'd be kind of like a place for us to acknowledge a little fanfare, feedback, and follow ups. So it's a lot of F's. So you, the Triple Junction, the three. <laughs> <laughs> the alliteration yeah. it's up to you we can take a vote after to see no, no. If it yeah. works out you know okay yeah i'm definitely down for that i will say when i heard triple junction my mind immediately went to the triple point just like andalusite <laughs> and uh kyanite oh like, yeah oh, he's, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, like my homies do all three <laughs> well, i think it'd be more like a triple junction isn't that where like you have like a it's a rift it's, and then one of them becomes like a failed arm yeah right? so, yeah the yeah. alloxygen yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, like, I don't know how to say that word <laughs> me either 
But so that sounds good. So for fanfare, we got an email. Yeah, so we did. Thank you yeah, for the email, Monique. And we always enjoy hearing everybody's geology stories. Yeah, we really do. So I mean, like, I feel like every yeah. time we get an email, I like, I always forward it to you and you're like, oh yeah, I read that. <laughs> like, I guess I, I, know, forget, I, guess yeah, I forget I that, you, that you have <laughs> like access to And then to like, you. I feel like this one, it was like, basically it was like, they mentioned that I studied under pursuit and I was like, oh yeah, I'll write them back. Yeah. <laughs> didn't. Oh, you did. So I, I not yet. I will. But like, in case you're listening, um, yes, I I had Doctor Basu, as, and so did James as, yeah. as our mineralogy and petrology professors. I guess back in 2013, 2014. Yeah, no, it was 2013. Yeah. I actually somehow went on to work with him for like four years after that. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm even thicker than the rest. Yeah, I will send you an email, and thanks for sending us one. We we really appreciate it. My wife's mom listens to this and like she heard that we had fan email or whatever she's like what you actually have people so, yeah. that listening to you? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, we yeah, actually do. So, cool. And then why I did that is, yeah, because we've been starting to get more emails. And then also, I we got a question this week, Mr. Baggins. And All it, right. Yeah, and it actually comes to us from Jared, and he asks, so when we look at Earth science, it is broken up into four categories. So it's geology, oceanography, meteorology, and astronomy. And he says, I can see how meteorology and astronomy are different from the other two, but when we look at geology the word means study of earth and he says to me that means the entire earth and not just the land but also includes the water on the earth why would it not be called the study of land masses or something similar so yeah i guess the the answers would be words 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 and words but (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah so i i I guess i i can kind of see where he's coming from so i'm i'm assuming that's probably like from my earth science class because that's how i have it broken up and on the broader topic, I think that he brings up a good point and maybe we should look towards making some distinctions within the context of earth science and geology itself. So really depending on how we talk about each of them, Jared, and in what setting we'll likely have different meanings in and of themselves. So historically speaking, I think when we first start seeing the mentions of the word geology itself was sometime in the 1700s. And it really was just, it started off as a discourse of the theory of earth, right? So, I mean, that's what it was. And in its original context, I, I believe it really had little to do with rocks, or I guess the scholars of the time really concerned themselves with the, with theology and more of a, like a philosophical philosophy type of thing so yeah it's like and so like geologists are the ones who explored the rocks they mapped the mountains explained the landscape covered the ice ages and they they laid bare the workings of the continents in the deeper yeah so geologists are the ones who first found aquifers they planned mines and mining advised on extractive industries laid straight the road to wealth based on gold iron oil etc right um yeah (laughs) but geologists they put the rock record in order they classified the fossils they named aeons eras of prehistory and laid out the deep foundation of biological evolution yeah so we we really saw that that transition from so they i guess they were an inquisitive bunch and then once they started went out of the realm of the skies and started looking to the ground i think in the broadest sense geology is simply the study of earth its interior and its exterior surface. We look at the rocks and other materials
materials that are around us, the processes that have resulted in the formation of those materials, and the water that flows over the surface and lies underground, and the changes that have taken place over the vastness of geologic time, and then these changes that we can anticipate will take place in the near future. We can think of geology as a science, and that we use deductive reasoning and scientific methods to understand geological problems. Yeah, it's arguably like the most integrated of all the sciences. I mean, we we like to brag about that because it involves understanding and application of all the other physical sciences like physics, chemistry, biology, but we also dive into, we need mathematics like the other sciences. But you mentioned in your question, astronomy, and unlike most of the other sciences, geology has an extra dimension in that time, billions of years. Yeah, and I know we've talked about it in other episodes too, just the vastness of geologic time. But the the idea of Earth science, we can think of it almost like uh, when we talk about geology in its spheres. Like Earth science is like a system with geology just being one of the arms of it. And it, they, they're all kind of interrelated. I mean, I guess, but, yeah, you know, I don't yeah. know. <laughs> and then, so the follow-up portions of this triple junction. So I know I misspoke last week when talking about, when we talked about pluvial. So I mentioned that it was something to do with uh, glacial yeah. lakes. <laughs> and yeah. upon looking at it, it just wasn't true. So just to get that out there and clear my geologic, I guess, conscious and soul, <laughs> pluvial is just going to refer to anything relating to or characterized by rainfall. So when we talk about a pluvial lake, it, it fills by rain. So yeah. <laughs> I just, I, it, well, it, it was kind of eating at me. So I was like, I got to clear this up. <laughs> James, the humble geologist. <laughs> James, the humble. That's like your like monk name or something. <laughs> <laughs> I'll make a beer, a geology beer. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, cool. So I actually like the triple junction section. I think it's honest. We do get to pull in questions from people and you know, just kind of throw out some cool facts and then the follow-up. So I, I think that's a good thing is we've got to check ourselves. When we talk to you, we are not 70 or 80 and have like <laughs> really, we're not masters of this. I mean, um, we, well, I, I guess you are. You are <laughs> well, I know. I mean, no, but by no yeah. means are we experts in all no, of these, yeah. all of the fields that we talk about. So, I mean, you know, I mean, right. that's what we're striving to, but occasionally we'll yeah. talk, we'll misspeak from time to time. So it's a good chance yeah. just to, and again, in the, in the cold open, <laughs> I'm like, well, if you tell us that we're wrong, well, this is where we will address where we were wrong and yeah. where all of you were right. <laughs> Shall we do a little awesome. bit of new news, Brian? Yeah, yeah. Do you mind if I go first this time? Yeah, I do mind. No, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So I am once again asking you to <laughs> dive into biology with me a little bit. So slow lorises. Lorises, um, okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how you, if that's the right way to say the plural, but lori, is that the, I don't know. Uh-huh. Um, they're little primates. They're really cute little primates, and they are found to be, they're adding them to the venomous <laughs> mammals. <laughs> what? There's venomous mammals? <laughs> Yeah, so there, there's quite a few, and I'm trying to think, like, so you know, like, platypus, right? Yeah, uh, okay, yeah, okay, so, yeah. I stand, I stand corrected. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this specific mammal, what they do is they get venom by licking their arms, in okay. which there's these glands, and so <laughs> I actually imagine them, like, licking their armpits, but I think it's actually their <laughs> upper, outer arm, <laughs> and, 
<laughs> and they lick their arms and collect this venom that secretes into little like like low areas in their teeth into pool. And okay. so then they bite you oh or whatever God. they're going to bite, and that's the venom. Wow. So, and, like, I wonder if it's, like, when they're licking it, if, if, if it has to do something with kind of, like, a chemical reaction with, like, their saliva, and then it just... I don't know. I don't know. But they found out that more often they're using this venom against each other. it's not like like i don't know i mean you might get bit by one and i'm not sure what it would do to you but it's like they kill each other (laughs) (laughs) well oh my goodness well i think that it that kind of ties into my my story about naked mole rats so i i went a little bit with uh kind of your your mo with my stories so naked mole rat i don't if you know what these are these are these ugly little things that have made the news mr brian again so the they're i i say again because the heterocephalus glabber or the mole rat not only do they rarely get cancer right so i think they've been studied they don't they don't get cancer very often not only do they (laughs) do they live considerably longer lives than their other rodent counterparts and have an extremely high pain tolerance these little critters actually have provided scientists with the first evidence of vocal learning in rodents. So these animals live in fairly large communities, upwards of 300 or so living together in this in their little community that they that they make. But they're nearly <laughs> blind and deaf and they communicate amongst one, one another using these high-pitched squeaks. Researchers have discovered that the various communities actually have their own individual dialects and that it is... What? Yeah, and that it comes <laughs> from or is passed along by their queen. The, the scientists, they record recorded the, the squeaks over 36,000 of these rats, analyzing the acoustic features that they found in the, the waveforms, and found that, in fact, that they are more likely to respond to dialects of their own colony rather than others. And then they really achieved this by using artificial sound that had acoustic features that test this response and found that birds of a feather, or I guess mole rats that are <laughs> naked together. <laughs> Anyways, they believe that since they, that they live in darkness, it was important for them to evolve this kind of dialect and the the creatures themselves are described as xenophobic and extremely violent towards outsiders does that sound like a, a wow. group of uh individual? yeah yeah it does <laughs> five. so what <laughs> so killing interlopers or uh, intruders to the colony you know the more you know and then i randomly put don't get naked and try to mingle with the mole rat <laughs> Dude, you, uh, did you ever watch the True Facts oh, uh, yeah. videos? Yeah, yeah. It, like that laughing you said, like, and just remember, <laughs> you find yourself naked and try to mingle with this. It just sounded like something you would say. <laughs> no, Hilarious. you might get trumped. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Thank you, Mole Rats. Well, my my, uh, second article I'd like to share, it has to do with the panda, and they have been watching them for a while now, and what they do is these pandas are caught on camera covering their whole bodies in horse manure. What? (laughs) Yeah, they just, they smear themselves around. Okay, so they're taking, like, droppings from horses and then covering themselves in it? Yeah. Okay, that sounds pretty... So, they think that because of when they do this, it's usually before it gets really cold, that there's a compound in the horse dung that it 
basically like short circuit a cellular thermostat that makes the panda sensitive to chill to oh, cold. Weird. And so it like reacts with them and it makes it to where they don't feel how cold it is. Did you read anything is that specific just to pandas or is it something to do specific with the diet of the horse's dung that they're spreading on themselves? Um, It didn't say about the diet of the horses, but it did say that the pandas prefer fresh dung. <laughs> so hot and steamy, <laughs> just take a dump on yeah. my chest. They really <laughs> like fresh stuff. <laughs> but yeah, there's like videos that they'll see like horse patties laying there. And yeah. then like the panda just starts rolling around in it. And then like it shows like 30 minutes later and the pandas brown basically uh, oh my goodness that's weird <laughs> well yeah well speaking of uh manure i titled like i i wrote my own heading for this one it says square dukes from round shoots oh, <laughs> oh no <laughs> oh my goodness oh. okay square dukes from round shoots <laughs> this story comes to us from the Ar- australian marsupial the bare-nosed wombat that pinches off roughly <laughs> 100 <laughs> six-sided dukes a day. So they're pooping cubes. Six-sided? Yeah, so like they're, 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 they're cubes. I should have put like maybe cubed dukes from round shoots. Wow. So the Vombatus ursinus, or the bare-nosed wombat, spends its day not in naked mole rat holes, but their own underground <laughs> tunnels and spends its night foraging on the local vegetation. So the animal is a territorial one in nature, and it uses its dukes to <laughs> mark their territory. <laughs> but the, the question still remains, how do they make square... <laughs> How do they make square? Yeah, how do they make a square duke from a round shoot? So they yeah, and like, why is it a square and not like a rectangle? Exactly. So they found that the wombat's intestinal tract has these two grooves in it, and is and at these places they're more elastic sections, and then they have these stiffer regions. And what they think is that it's going to contract faster than the softer ones, and then the softer areas squeeze and mold the corners, making their dukes more cubic oh in nature. God. So the it's the sum total of the wombat's grooved tissue and irregular contractions over many cycles that shape the firm, flat-sided, cubed dukes. <laughs> <laughs> so wow oh uh, wow all right <laughs> dude and i get on to my kids for talking about poop too much that's all we like we <laughs> dude i know well. <laughs> well we're adults we we know we, and maybe we don't even know but no i don't know all right well <laughs> on to episode 18 we go my friend i went back and forth yeah. on the title of this i, I know i uh, i texted you like yeah during the week like i send you text messages and i guess like you forget to press send and i'm just like I'm left sorry. on i'm left on a red <laughs> as as the kids say but no uh, yeah. <laughs> i'm just like oh man he hates me and no 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 <laughs> but so i went back and forth on the title and i think we landed on a pretty good one so it is named wax on wax off <laughs> yeah, like, you see how it's spelled yeah. uh it, oh, it makes yeah, more sense. Yeah. And it, it really continues along our broader discussion that we've been having on and off for the past couple of weeks of sedimentary basins, depositional environments, and sedimentary facies. And I thought for tonight's episode, we could talk about the composition, classification, and diagenesis of some of these rocks. And for tonight in particular, anyways, I think we're going to go on the journey of the siliciclastic sedimentary rock sandstone. Yeah. Yeah. So this is funny because this is actually pretty much all I'm doing this week at work. I'm characterizing the mineralogy and composition of a sandstone unit and 
sediment derived from these sandstones. Huh. And so it, I'm really having to dive into like how much of this mineral is in the sandstone. What does that even mean? Why is there more of this one here, but not in another one? And we'll get into cycles, like first cycle, second cycle of sandstones later. But it's just, it's really cool that we're, like you said in a couple episodes ago, you're kind of following me on the study with these subjects and it was not planned. No. Like yeah. That, yeah. And I was, I was, I was, I was going to wait. I was like, and all of whenever I, I, you know, I made the outline for this, like I wasn't like, Hey Brian, what are you studying specifically at this moment? <laughs> it's just, it just, this is where I landed. And then after taking notes, I was like, we're going to have to spend a whole episode on this because if we go any further outside of the realm of sandstones, I, I feel like it would be, it, <laughs> we would be here for hours and we're not trying <laughs> yeah. to, you know, I guess, glaze your eyes over too much about the sandstone. So I think if we just take a step back, uh, why we keep talking about the the same things over and over about sedimentary things is, well, it's basically the, the sedimentary rocks make up at outcrop about three quarters of all rocks at the Earth's surface. And then these are going to be sedimentary in nature, yeah. right? So this is just like the thin veneer of what we see, but most of it is going to be sedimentary rocks. And and they really can span the age range from basically pre all the way up to the Holocene. Yeah, so like you, you mentioned, like they make up, you know, three quarters of all the rocks at the uh-huh. Earth's surface. And think about it, like they're getting washed down, like they're eroding other rocks. So these other rocks are built in mountain building type or rifting type environment yeah. or v- volcanoes. Then like that can only occupy a certain amount of space, but water and wind can take this stuff for miles and miles and miles. So, Which is kind of like what we saw of, on Saturday. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It seems like, wow, like why would it do that? But when you think of it in that way, it's just taking, you know, things from other rock formations that are not sedimentary and transporting them for long distances that's why yeah then they Um, get reworked and oh man yeah so sedimentary rocks that are composed of mainly silicate particles derived by weathering breakdown of older rocks and by pyroclastic volcanism are what we call silicoclastic silicoclastic (laughs) uh, sedimentary rocks so that was that was the other one that i was gonna call this episode was the silly plastic (laughs) like a a funny sandstone (laughs) that i've oh yeah (laughs) yeah but so so these rocks are really going to be special indicators of earth's history like you said with the mountain building events and them you know rifting it's these rocks coming from different places they're they're getting their they're they're deriving from once i guess sedimentary rocks is part of the rock record right where you get the 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 weathering and the sedimentation then you have the of the sediments and you have the lithification but so when we talk about the siliciclastic rocks they're going to provide us information about the ancient sediment transported and the depositional conditions so in addition the minerals in the rock fragments in the siliciclastic sedimentary rocks furnish our most definitive clues to the nature and location of vanished ancient mountain systems such as the ancestral Rocky Mountains. So a good place to start would be to discuss the types of minerals and rock fragments we'll call lithics, right? Yeah. Um, that make up the sandstones, shales, and conglomerates in other siliciclastic rocks, and then examine some of the ways that you and I and other geologists use the compositions of these to classify them and interpret aspects of their origin. Yeah, when we think of siliciclastic sedimentary rocks, just to backstep a little bit, they do include sandstone shells and conglomerates and mudstones and all of that. I think I put that in at the beginning just because I didn't know where it was going. But let's (laughs) first present to everyone out there the sandstones, the ultimate silly clastic. <laughs> <laughs> it really is, though. 
It really is the ultimate. So sandstones, they make up roughly a quarter of all the sedimentary rock and are fairly common throughout the rock record in geologic settings and seen throughout the continent. And they can occur in beds ranging in thickness from a few centimeters to tens of meters thick. Yeah, and then the when we think about them, the grains of the sandstones are predominantly silicate grains that can vary in size. So I know we've talked about this before, about the size uh, and the classification schemes. Anyways, yeah. in general, I think uh, sedimentary terms, we're going to think of them from 1 16th up to 2 millimeters in diameter. So uh, they, they should be fairly visible to the naked eye. And then when we think of these grains, it is what makes up the rock. Or in other words, it is going to be the framework fraction of that rock. Yeah, and I was thinking about that. And I was, oh, well, sand-sized grains are like, what, 63 micron on up to, I can't remember like what the cutoff is, but that made me think what we're going to get into later. And what I'm going to bring up right now is that they can have a variety of different cement. And so we'll talk about what a cement is versus something that we also call a matrix. And both of these combine the larger sand grains together, but they're from different processes. Yeah. And so, so just remember we have cement, it's going to be fine grained and what we refer to also as the matrix. Yep. The fancy definition is the fine grain material present within the interstitial pore space along the framework grains. Yeah, I like that word, um, interstitial. Yeah. I think there's going to yeah. be words, <laughs> maybe we just make a separate, those are my favorite words. Because sandstones are relatively coarser grain than say, let's say shales, the, the framework mineralogy can quite easily and accurately be determined with standard petrographic microscopes or by backscattered electron microscopy. Bulks chemical composition can be determined by instrumental techniques such as x-ray fluorescence and ICP, which is not insane clown posse, but it is <laughs> <laughs> the inductively coupled argon plasma emission spectrometer. And it's pretty cool stuff. I've used one before. Um, but <laughs> Brian <yeah>. Braggs. <laughs> Brian Braggs. There I used are. one before. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I used it. What, then, like, so individual chemistry can be determined by EDX attached to a scanning electron that microscope. It just it just sounds and, so Brian Baggins. <laughs> so okay, so the the sandstone framework mineralogy. So the particles that make up sandstone are mainly sand-sized and coarse silt-sized silicate minerals and rock fragments, as we just referenced as the framework grains. So there, there are really only just a few principal types of minerals that make up the bulk of sandstone. So it's it's quite easily identifiable between the other types of siliciclastic sedimentary rocks. So the dominant mineral is going to be quartz, which is SiO2. And most sandstones making up an average of 50 to 60% of that framework fraction. So it's fairly easy mineral to identify both megascopically in hand samples and also microscopically in thin sections. Yeah, and so uh, this was my day, actually, because it can be confused with feldspars. Huh. As you know, quartz is going to be a lot harder and it has a higher chemical stability, very just silicon dioxide. Yeah. Um, quartz, interestingly enough, can survive multiple recycling processes, and that's why you see it being more of a dominant mineral in most sandstones, um, uh -huh. depending on where you are. 
right? Like, yeah. But the grains often display some degree of rounding acquired by a rate abrasion or pitting during one or more episodes of transport, particularly transport by wind. So uh, another another way that you can tell a difference between quartz and feldspars is you really need to know your crystal symmetry and how things break, whether it's by cleavage or by conchoidal fracturing, which we know quartz. I think that's like the first thing you learn. And oh, yeah. Just when you go through the minerals, is it, it has the conchoidal fracture. And so that actually... <laughs> Did you hear my it, dog? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I thought it was like your conchoidal fracture, but... Oh, it can be. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that, that definitely saved me today because when you start looking at grain, especially when they're all clear and they've all been abraded, they can start to look very similar. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. And then, so the the quartz, it can occur as a single monocrystalline grains or as composite polycrystalline grains. And when viewed under cross-polarized light, the grains display this, I, th- I think it's really cool, this undul- undulatory yeah. extinction when the base is rotated, when you have that cross-polarized light. Yeah, super cool. It, yeah. And it basically means that grains will display sweeping patterns of, of extinction. Right? Yeah, so that light, it so, goes light and dark, light and dark. Yeah, yeah, it definitely looks really cool, especially when you like rotate it, like you're saying. There's some research that suggests that the properties of polycrystallinity and undulatory extinction can be used to distinguish quartz derived from even different sources. Huh, that's that's um, kind of interesting. Yeah, so quartz is derived from plutonic rock, particularly <laughs> silic plutonic rocks such as granite, uh, metamorphic rocks, and older sandstones. Very little quartz is actually derived from volcanic rock. I would, I would like to read a study about that, like how you could actually use these extinctions to distinguish that. That's kind of, I think that's neat. Yeah, it is. I mean, like, think about it, because when you have a sandstone, you're not you're not guaranteed, and that's kind of what my study is on right now, is you're not guaranteed it's only going to be coming from erosion of this one metamorphic sequence or this one igneous intrusion or something. It can come from many. Yeah, and so and, you're, and I was going to say, yeah, and then it could be like from, you know, it's like a second order, third order, like, you know, the recycling right. <laughs> events. So then the the next one that we're going to examine is the, the, the next major framework mineral are going to be the feldspars, what we just, what you were talking about a little bit. So the feldsparred minerals make up 10 to 20 percent of framework grains of all of the sandstones. So several varieties of feldspars are recognized on the basis of differences in chemical composition and optical properties. So they are divided into the, the two broad categories of these alkali feldspars and plagioclase feldspars. So I think I'm going to take the alkali and you can take the, the plagioclase if that's okay with you, Mr. Brian. Cool. All right. Yeah. So the alkali feldspars constitute a group of minerals in which the chemical composition ranges through a complete solid solution series from the, the KALSI308 through the, the sodium aluminum silicate or the Na. Anyways, it, it goes from potassium to <laughs> sodium, right? That's Na. Mm-hmm. Okay, so potassium is such a common mineral of this group that it, it really generally is referred to as a potassium feldspar or for short, what we call K-spar. And then the more common minerals that we see referred to as K-spar are going to be really orthoclase and microcline and sanidine. Yeah, and plage, so we're plagioclase. <laughs> it's all also has a complex solid solution series and it's I guess I would say it's more complete in in a solid solution series than your alkali feldspars but yeah it ranges then from that also that sodic in number so you'll have uh albite which is NaAlSiO8 all the way up in I think it's maybe six different 
feldspar, plagioclase minerals. Yeah, we, yeah we, we've gone into great depth yeah. in previous. <laughs> yeah, we will not bore you with that again, but it goes all the way up to anorthite, which is a calcic end member yeah. of that solid solution series. And so one of the optical ways we can distinguish between calcium feldspars and the plagioclase feldspars is that plage, it displays this really awesome thing called optical twinning. And some calcium feldspars, such as orthoclase and sanidine, and some plage are not twinned, and they make it more difficult to distinguish between one another even and even quartz. Yeah, and then really not to add to any real confusion, but generally, and I say generally, which is not always true, but case bars are generally considered to be somewhat more abundant in sedimentary rocks as a whole, rather than their plagioclase counterparts. However, plagioclase is more abundant in sandstones that are going to be derived directly from volcanic rocks. So again, the yeah. context that we're going to be viewing mm-hmm. these are will give clues into its parent rock or right yeah and we we also find that feldspars are less stable than quartz and that makes them more susceptible to chemical destruction during weathering and diagenesis. Due to this, we see that feldspars become much more rounded during transport, yeah. which might be a clue yeah, to like help distinguish them between a feldspar grain and a quartz grain that doesn't twin. Another clue we see with feldspars is they're much more easily broken mechanically, owing to that cleavage that it, I was talking about earlier. Yeah, so feldspars are, are really less likely than quartz to survive several episodes of recycling, although that they can survive more than one cycle itself, conditions really need to be favorable, such as in a moderately arid environment or a colder environment. It, it, it would be important to note that even though they are easily weathered, the presence of a few feldspar grains in a sedimentary rock does not necessarily mean that the rock is going to be composed of first cycle sediments, like we just talked about, derived directly from more crystalline igneous rocks or metamorphic rocks. And then also on the other yeah. hand, a high content of feldspars, particularly on the order of 25% or more, it's probably going to indicate the derivation directly from crystalline rock. So it's... <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's a good point because like you can't just say like, oh, I see this here. This must, must mean that then yeah. like or where it came from. It's, you do have to look in some other areas. And so let's look at some accessory framework minerals. Okay. Yeah. These minerals are going to have an average abundance in sedimentary rocks on like the order of one to two percent. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And you're, so you're going to see like the common micas, like muscovite, the really light silvery one, and biotite, the black brownish, and then a large number of so-called heavy minerals, which are my favorite, <laughs> which are like denser than quartz. Yeah. So these the when you talk about the, the so the coarse micas make up, I guess, really less than about what zero point five percent. Although that in sandstones may contain up to two to three percent. Again, we give you like we say one thing, but then we're going <laughs> to offer you another <laughs> option, but but micas themselves are distinguished from other minerals by their platy or flaky habit. Muscovite is more chemically stable than biotite, therefore making it more abundant in sandstones. And we know that it's more stable due to Bowen's reaction series. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I love how we, anything we talk about has multiple ways to bring back like several different topics we've already labored everybody with. <laughs> yeah, right? I like it yeah. too. <laughs> yeah, so when I said heavy minerals, those are going to be minerals that have have specific gravity greater than 2.9. Okay. I don't know why they 
cut it off there, but they did. So the minerals include both chemically stable and unstable varieties. And stable minerals include our show's most talked about minerals, Zircon. <laughs> so bright. And, <laughs> and Rutile, because they can survive, due to their durability, multiple recycling episodes. And they're found to be, at times, rounded, indicating that the last source was sedimentary in nature. So I think that's interesting, just even indicating that the roundness of, say, a zircon or a rutile, it, it's <clears> more <throat> indicative that it was uh, a, it was derived from a, a previous sedimentary rock rather than, like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, I, I think that's really cool. And then what was I going to say? And every time that I hear Zir- like the zircon story and multiple uh, recycling events, I think of that story you tell us about, <laughs> that, that one zircon that told the story of basically Earth. <laughs> Yeah, it's so crazy. And like in in a sandstone, like you can see like that's how they that is like the king mineral of provenance studies, trying to figure out where the sediments came from to make up the the sandstone. But I mean, you'll have rounded zircons and sandstones. And so you're you're like, okay, this is kind of like a highly recycled material. But then you're going to have these like prismatic euhedral zircons. And you're like, okay, well, then this either the earth, the geomorphology changed or or something else happened (laughs) to get like different sources. So and then what did you you found that really, really cool in your sense? You sent me a picture Uh, of it. Do you want to tell us that while we're talking about cool minerals? Yeah. So that actually is like up there we said that quartz is not very prevalent in in, in volcanic rocks, especially yeah. not like in a, a porphyritic sense. So where you have a large uh, larger grains of quartz versus the uh, matrix. I was just hunting through this the sediments of the sandstone today and I looked down and I was like, oh my God, what? And, and, and is I have seen these before and they're pseudomorphs after what's called beta quartz. Yeah. And beta quartz is like really high pristine quartz that's formed at really high temperatures. And it's because the symmetry of these W little quartz crystals are it's perfect. All Dude. the planes meet together. There's no offset. Yeah. So um, it's like, uh, what is what is, it, it? It was double terminated. So it, it had like, yeah. it was like the two pyramids that are just like stacked right on top of you. So there's yeah. no like elongate to like, no, like prismatic so, structure to it. It was just two pyramids on top of each other. Yeah. And so I was like, I haven't seen anything like this in here, but this shows that it came from a high temperature rock that had a lot of silica in it versus all these others that are probably derived from like local granite, uh, lower temp. Yeah. And so it just shows that you can have multiple parent rocks for your sandstone. It yeah, was, multiple really reworking. Cool. Yeah, in that picture yeah. you saw, maybe you'll send it to me and we'll make a, or you can make a, <laughs> a Instagram post onto it. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, sure. I, mean it, I, I thought it was really, really neat. And I, and I feel like that it's going to help you tell a story of that sandstone that you're looking at. It definitely will. Either yeah. that or they'll be like, you go way too far in the weeds, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> like, what is he like? So you have one of these, but I'm like, but it's that... <laughs> You know how you find one of these then. But yeah, so yeah. Uh, anyway, so less stable that we were talking about, we'll get back on track. So less stable minerals, including magnetite, pyroxenes, and amphiboles are less likely to survive recycling. They're commonly first cycle sediments that reflect the composition of uh, proximate source rocks. Basically, we can conclude that heavy minerals are great indicators of sediment sources or source rocks because different types of source rocks yield different suites of heavy minerals that are derived from a variety of igneous rocks metamorphic rocks and other sedimentary rocks even though it's kind of like you can have them in there but they're less likely to be in other sedimentary rocks yeah so anyway right and and because of their low abundance 
in sandstones, heavy minerals are commonly concentrated for study by separating them from the light mineral fraction by using heavy liquids such as bromophorum, sodium, polungstate, and then I think the really nasty one that Dr. Estelle maybe uses like tetrabrobiumethane. I think I told you that story. Yeah, yeah, you did. Yeah, <laughs> like passing out. But it, it allows the lighter sediments to float to the bottom or to float, I'm sorry, in heavy grains to sink, allowing for that separation. So from there, we can then put them under a microscope and see what we have. Okay, so yeah, so and then we can examine the the lithics uh, part of the framework, grains, if you will. So pieces of ancient source rock that have not yet disintegrated to yield individual mineral, mineral grains are called rock fragments or clasts. And this is where we're getting that clastic. So rock mm-hmm. fragments make up about 15 to 20% of the framework grains in the average sandstone. However, <laughs> so however, the, the rock fragment content of sandstone is highly variable from, we can see sometimes that there's not any at all at zero to more than 95%. Fragments of any type of igneous, metamorphic, or sedimentary rock can occur in the sandstones themselves. And igneous rocks that have aphanitic or fine-grained textures usually are preserved as sand-sized fragments, so they're going to be smaller. Mm-hmm. And then really the, the, the phaneritic or coarser-grained source rocks, such as your granites, typically yield uh, grains in the sandstone that are coarse sand-sized or, or larger. Yeah, they're not, um, these lithics are not really common because granites, they'll commonly disintegrate to yield individual minerals rather than the class. The most common rock fragments we see in sandstones are class of volcanic rock. So volcanic glass uh, in younger age rocks and then uh-huh. fine grained metamorphic rocks such as slate, phyllite, schist, quartzite. Kind of compounds it too is like you can in the, the first order have them as your clasts and then they disintegrate into right into individual mineral grains. So yeah. it, it's kind of hard. <laughs> it gets tricky when you start like, you know, you you have this assemblage of vomit of the earth. <laughs> <laughs> basically it's really what it is yeah. <laughs> yeah but yeah so these sand-sized fragments of silica cemented siltstones uh, fine-grained sandstones and shales are less common as these clasts and then clasts of limestone or other carbonate rock are also even more less common if i want to just use bad englishes <laughs> and this is probably in part because they do not survive weathering and transport with that calcium carbonate uh, composite quartz grains that consist of exceedingly small quartz crystals. They're referred to like what we call microcrystalline quartz. They're going to be called chert. And chert grains are actually rock fragments. They're derived by weathering of bedded chert or chert nodules and limestones, and they can be really abundant in some sandstones. Yeah. So then, at what point do we call them like the like a quartz matrix versus lithics? If it's that chert, I, I always I, call them lithics. I think uh, like, you always call it the usually. chert at least. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Then I guess rock fragments really play an important role in the studying of sedimentary rocks in that they are moderately easily identified and they are more reliable indicators of source rock types than individual minerals such as quartz or the feldspars which can be derived from different source rocks which I mean that would make sense if you have like a a chunk of granite in your you know what I'm saying like a weathered (laughs) piece of granite yeah or a piece of basalt it's going to you know it's going to say oh well I can probably guess that the the source rock was (laughs) whatever that rock type was 
Yeah, and and that it is true. But then, like, think about like our cumulate. Like, I'm getting. I just went there because I had that. Like, I was like, oh, here's a lithic fragment. Oh, it's a cyanogranite. I'm like, why the hell am I writing that? Like, <laughs> I have like a like a, like I have like a one millimeter clasp, and I'm classifying <laughs> a parent rock off of that. That's uh, not good to do. So yeah. don't go too far. But it does. Like you're right. Like it will tell you. Like oh, like I have the basic workings of a granite here. I got plastic. I got taste bar and I got quartz head. So you, you would then know like, okay, I'm looking at a granitic parent. So yeah, it's cool. So I want to take us into the cement matrix discussion. Yeah, that now, sounds good. Okay, yeah, yeah, no, because I mean, we talked about the framework, which are going to be making up the, the grains. Now we need the, I guess, what lithifies them together, right? Yeah, I want to like, we can distinguish those real quick by saying that mineral cement is something that happens after all the sediments are laid down. Yeah, so um, diagenesis. Yeah, or like water flowing through or whatever. So mm-hmm. the framework grains in most of these siliciclastic sedimentary rocks, they're going to be bound together usually by some type of mineral cement. And these cementing materials might be silicate minerals such as quartz, opal, and clay minerals, typically like an illite, like secondary growth kind of clay mineral, or it can be non-silicate such as calcite and dolomite, which we see a lot of here. Yeah. In Texas, if quartz, again, we see is going to be the most common silicate mineral that acts as a cement, like globally. Yeah. In most sandstones, the quartz cement is chemically attached to the crystal lattice of existing quartz grains forming little rim of cement. And what's really cool about these rims are what we call overgrowths that retain crystallographic continuity of a grain are said to be syntaxial. Since syntaxial overgrowths are optically continuous with original grains, they they go they have the same extinction angles in the same position as the original grain itself when rotated under that cross-polarized light. So overgrowth we can recognize by a line of impurities or bubbles that mark the surface of the original grain. Quartz overgrowths are common in sandstones, while microcrystalline cement is less common. And then uh, the the microcrystalline cement has a similar texture to chert. And when it's deposited, it forms like a, a mosaic of very tiny quartz crystals that fill the interstitial spaces among the framework grains. Right. Where it like rarely will find opal, it, uh, which is isotropic, and it, it can occur as a cement. Opals like quartz or chert, but it contains water. It actually lacks a true crystal structure. So we call it a mineraloid, I believe. Right? Yeah. Is yeah, that true? That's yeah. True. So it's amorphous. Opal is said to be metastable, and it will eventually crystallize over time become microcrystalline quartz. And that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, and then the other type that we see, so you um, alluded to it earlier, so the carbonate minerals are going to be the most abundant non-silicate mineral cement in the siliciclastic sedimentary rocks. And then calcite in particular is a common carbonate cement. It is precipitated in the pore spaces among framework grains, typically forming the, the mosaic of smaller crystals. And these crystals adhere to the larger framework grains and bind them together. So the the, the cement it's we're we're lithifying these things holding it together and then less common carbonate cements are the the dolomite and then the siderite which is an iron carbonate other minerals that act as cement and sandstone can include anything from iron oxide minerals hematite and limonite or feldspars and hydrite gypsum uh bayrite clay minerals and zeolite minerals zeolite they're cool they're little hydrous aluminous silicate minerals that occur as cement primarily in like volcanic classic sedimentary rocks. All cements, like we said, they're going to be secondary minerals. 
So they form after sandstones are deposited and they fill in all the pore spaces. Yeah. And I, I, earlier we could uh, get into the diagenesis of it because I feel like that, yeah. that plays an important role into it. But right, I mean, that's going to have to be for <laughs> another type. But anyways, yeah. so there there are the matrix minerals. Like I, I think we just uh, talked about a little bit before the, the grains in the sandstones smaller than roughly 0.03 millimeters are what we can consider these these matrix minerals grains which and then like they're small enough that they can fill the interstitial spaces among all the framework grains right so i guess it comes into like the porosity of the mm-hmm. of the the contacts of the whatever so anyways matrix minerals may include fine sized micas quartz and feldspars however clay minerals make up the bulk of matrix grains and because of their small size clay minerals are difficult to identify by just looking at them with a petrographic microscope yeah it, you, i there's no way i can do that <laughs> like it's, it's just near impossible so really what we do is we have to identify them by x-ray diffraction techniques electron micros microscopy <laughs> i always say that word wrong or some non-optical methods but clay minerals are compositionally diverse and they, they really, really are, are. yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah like and so they they actually belong to the phyllosilicate mineral group like the micas right but it they're characterized by two-dimensional layer structure arranged in basically like a indefinitely extending sheet. Yeah, and and then the the most common clay mineral groups are going to include one such as illite, which I will give you the chemical formula, which is uh, K2SI6AL2AL4O20OH4. <laughs> or, you know, we could bring up the spectite. Um, <laughs> such a gross word. Which it is. terrible. <laughs> which is like altered volcanic glass. And so it's Montmorillonite is the really famous one. Uh-huh. And you know what? I'm going to spit off the, the chemical formula too. ALMG8, SI4, O10, 3, OH10, and 12 water. Okay. So, um, so is that, uh, when, the, when we talk about the, the Montmorillonite, is, is that what they used in the, I guess, back in Roman days, whenever they would have like their, their water systems to kind of make it impermeable? Yeah. yeah. And we, we, uh, it's so another word for like the, like a, for the actual volcanic ash bed that's altered is bentonite. Okay. And so we actually still use that for like plugging stuff and making like an impermeable layer, like an aquitard, an artificial one. Um, And so like we still use that stuff day. They were way ahead of their time, eh? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so my favorite clay mineral is the the mineral kaolinite, which is Al2Si205OH4. <laughs> and then also we can see chlorite is uh, another clay mineral, which is the MGFE5ALFE3PLUS2Si3O10OH. <laughs> I don't know why we're saying that. But anyways, kaolinite is the, the one that's the oddball in that, in that it's a two-layer clay. Uh, the others are three layered clays and like you said schmectite is a clay mineral group of which montmorillonite is a principal variety clay minerals form principally as secondary minerals during subaerial weathering and hydrolysis although they can also form by subaqueous weathering in the marine environment and during burial diagenesis. And I think traditionally there's been a relatively little emphasis on the the study of the chemical composition of siliciclastic sedimentary rocks and sharp contrast to geologists who study igneous and metamorphic rocks. Yeah, I think 
Previously, the lack of interest is due in part to the common belief that chemical composition of silicic plastic rocks is less useful than mineral composition for interpreting depositional histories and provinces. But did I say nay? <laughs> you sure did. I did. say nay. Nay. <laughs> you know, like also the the present chemical composition for interpretation may not accurately reflect their composition at the time of deposition because crystallization of new minerals during sedimentary burial and diagenesis can change the original composition of these rock formations. Yeah, so not only are we seeing that it can be, you know, different sources of rocks, like you can actually change the the chemical uh, makeup of some of the minerals <laughs> in it. So like it only compounds yeah. in the confusion. So yeah, so like I, I think like in previous, whenever they would study these things, that there was just this uh, high cost of doing chemical analysis on kind of all of this in addition factor to consider. So it, it discouraged extensive uh, chemical studies studies of the of this of the sandstones however as technology improves there's new tools and then attitudes have also changed and that's helped kind of change the narrative a bit so for example like uh, the chemical data both bulk chemical composition and trace element compositions of individual minerals really have been applied to provenance studies <laughs> that 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 really links sedimentary materials to their source rocks and that's you know the whole idea of all of this is to help you along in your studies brian yeah thank you thank yeah. you for like joining the journey <laughs> so i wanted to point out like because most grains in siliciclastic sedimentary rocks are derived from various types of igneous metamorphic and other sedimentary rocks the mineralogy the chemical composition they're going to be a function of parent rock composition. But nonetheless, sedimentary rocks display distinct chemical differences from that parent source, and that's owing to chemical changes that occur during just our weather here on Earth. Yeah. And diagenesis and burial. That's what happens when you get exposed to the to the elements, my friend. Yeah. Yeah. So, for example, they tend to be enriched really in silica and depleted in these iron, magnesium, calcium, sodium, and potassium elements compared to the parent rock. So, you're really seeing this enrichment in silica occurs because siliceous minerals resist that chemical weathering. We can say that the, the silica is concentrated in weathering residues with respect to more soluble cations. Also, I, I think it's worth mentioning that the superior chemical stability of quartz causes sedimentary rocks to become progressively enriched in these during the multiple recycling. The overall silica content is going to increase at the expense of, like you said, the less stable iron and magnesium rich minerals. Yeah, so it seems like almost like a, a more confusing and uh, backwards way of kind <laughs> of like, you know, the, 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 the same holds true for the magma bodies increasing in silica content, right? Becoming more quartz saturated yeah. as you take out all of these, uh, right? So it's like the bone reaction series in reverse but not because they're weathering <laughs> i don't i don't know yeah. what i was trying to say <laughs> but anyways from all that we can kind of come up with the descriptive classification of sandstones and and it's based fundamentally on framework mineralogy although the the relative abundances of the matrix plays a role in some instances when doing this i was surprised to find out that even though it seems like using the mineralogy to classify sandstone seems pretty straightforward there are over 50 classification schemes <laughs> yeah. 
50? Yeah, so <laughs> 50 classification I schemes. I mean, I think there might even be more of that. So the, the thing is with classification schemes that seem to be all-inclusive, seem to be too complicated for general use. And then classification yeah. <laughs> systems that are oversimplified tend to convey too little useful information. So it's kind of counterintuitive. If you make it too inclusive, uh, you're not really answering questions because it's too specific. But then if you make it too simple, uh, you can't use it. It's not providing yeah. anything. Yeah, I mean, we can't really get into all of them, but like mineralogical classification. So I, I think that that's a pretty good one. And so we, we think of like most sandstones are made up a mixture of a very small number of dominant framework components. So we got quartz, we got feldspars, and then we have our lithics, such as church, volcanic class that are the only framework constituents that are commonly abundant enough to be important in that classification. So in addition to the framework grains, the matrix may be present in interstitial spaces among these grains. In spite of the very simple composition of sandstones, geologists have not been able to agree that we don't we have like <laughs> problems doing that for whatever reason on a single acceptable sandstone classification. Everyone gets overqualified and or you know what I'm saying, experts in just this one little thing and they want to kind of apply it to everything. But anyway, so yeah. most classification schemes involve a QFR or a QFL, if you will, plot. And these plots are triangle diagrams in which the quartz, which is the Q, the feldspar, the F, and the rock fragments or lithics, the R and L, they're going to be plotted as end members at the poles of the classification triangle. And then there's really numerous possible ways that such a triangle can be subdivided into various classification fields. Now, most common is based on earlier classifications, based on DOT from 1964. Classifies sandstones that are effectively free of matrix. So we're talking, I think it's actually set in as like less than 5%. Yep. Um, and that those are going to be quartz aronite, uh, feldspathic aronites, or lithic aronites, uh, depending on relative abundance of the QFL constituent. And then if the matrix can be recognized at least 5%, the term quartz whack or feldspathic whack or lithic whack are used instead. And then I think one of the, the principal differences between DOT's classification scheme from others of his time is that he set the difference between the the aronites and the wax at 15% matrix. So that was his mm. distinction and cutoff. Okay. Um, another classification uh, such as Arcos. So I like that word. It's, a, it's, uh, and it's often, yeah, yeah. It's often used informally by geologists for any feldspathic aronite that's particularly rich, usually greater than roughly 25% in the feldspars. Another term is commonly, it's called gray whack. Gray yeah. wacky? I don't know what you say. Yeah, gray it's whack. gray whack. <laughs> yeah. And this name is commonly applied to matrix-rich sandstones of any composition that have undergone deep burial, have a chloritic matrix, and are dark gray to dark green. They're very hard and dense. This term has been much misused and its continued use is the best controversial. Yeah, so I kind of use it in <laughs> classification. It's kind of like the, the catch-all for shale, right? So some geologists think that the, the term should be abandoned entirely and that we should yeah. substitute the word whack for gray whack. So I think it's like a, a catch-all. That's probably good advice. Yeah. 
Yeah. So in any case, the name is best restricted to field use and should not be used as a petrographic term. And then we often, in all of this, when we talk about sandstones, we often hear the term maturity when we talk about sandstones. Mm. And this can be applied in two different ways. So the, the first way we can think about it is compositional maturity. And this refers to the relative abundance of stable and unstable framework grains in sandstone. So a sandstone composed mainly of quartz is really going to be considered compositionally mature, while a sandstone that contains an abundant unstable minerals, for example, the feldspars or unstable rock fragments is what we would consider compositionally immature. Yeah, and you'll see uh, also um, like your heavy minerals like zircon, they're going to be more abundant in your mature sandstones because they're going to survive like coarse wood. Right. So that's, that's also a really good indicator. But Another way we use the term maturity is the textural maturity, and that's determined by the relative abundance of matrix and the degree of rounding um, and sorting of the framework grain. So textural maturity, it can range from mature, so you're going to have much clay, framework grains, poorly sorted and poorly rounded, um, and then on the other end, super mature, so you have basically little or no clay uh, framework grains that are well sorted and well rounded. Yeah, so this this textural maturity allegedly reflects the degree of sediment transport and reworking. However, it 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 may also be affected by diagenetic processes like clay minerals forming in pore spaces during the burial of diagenesis. But I think before we go any further, Mr. Brian, I think we should do a little mineral. Mineral minutes. Mineral. Minerals. Mineral. Minerals. Mineral minutes. Brian Falcon's minerals. Minerals. All right. So this week's mineral minute is brought to you by the sodium to calcium amphibole fluororichterite. Fluororichterite's chemical formula is Na NaCa Mg five Sia O twenty two. F2. Yeah, so fluororichterite is a brown to a brownish red mineral and can also be rose red like the bowl of salsa <laughs> on the table. <laughs> Yellow, gray brown, and also pale to dark green in color. Fluororichterite has a vitreous luster and hardness of five to six. All right, so fluororichterite streaks white and has a specific gravity of 3.17. Fluororichterite is monoclinic and crystal class is 2M prismatic. This mineral's type locality, Mayas, Chelabinsk, Oblast, Russia. <laughs> ah, motherland! <laughs> Stay tuned for next week's mineral, fluorocatophorite. <laughs> fluorocatophorite. <laughs> Oh man! Well, I kind of, I do, I kind of do miss the uh, last season's. Uh, they were, they were, they were oh, the longer mineral minute sponsored minerals, but maybe yeah. it's just the fluoro roro roro minerals. Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe, but <laughs> we are. Yeah, <laughs> but on to the general characteristics of major classes of sandstone. So, as we previously mentioned, sandstones that are derived based on their framework mineralogy, and we can classify them into three following groups. It was the quartz arenites or arenites. How you say them, Brian? <laughs> 
<laughs> it's, yeah. see, it's always funny to see how we we say the different kind of I know. the funny words. <laughs> but anyway, so we have the the quartz aronites, the feldspathic aronites, and then the lithic aronites, which are going to include the wax. So let's let's begin with the quartz aronite. <laughs> they are sandstones. They're comprised of more than ninety percent delicious grains. So they can include quartz, church, and quartzose rock fragments. Um, when examining the delicious grains, they're going to be commonly white or light gray, but they can be stained pink, red, yellow, brown, blue, brown, but I don't know. Like you literally can just keep going. Yeah. It's crazy. But really like a lot of the prominent staining is by iron oxide. Yeah. And then typically these, these types of sandstones are going to be well lithified and well cemented with either silica or carbonate cement. And they, they're associated with rock assemblages deposited in stable cratonic environments, such as your aeolian, your beach, or shelf environments. And then due to their depositional environments, they tend to be texturally mature to super mature. They, they tend to be interbedded with shallow water carbonates and in some cases with feldspathic sandstones. So these quartz wax are fairly uncommon common with the with the quartz aronites cross bedding is going to be particularly characteristic and ripple marks are moderately uh, common found in the beds yeah fossils are also they're rarely abundant so possibly owing to the poor preservation or the aeolian origin yeah. of some of the quartz aronites but they can be present i actually there i was looking at one last week i went out to lake ray roberts and oh, i was nice. doing an inspection um and mapping some rocks i was like man, this is nice Caribbean beach sand. Like, what's going on? And I, I looked over and then I saw all the cross setting. It was nice. And I, I was like, oh my God, this is actually a quartz aronite here in North Texas. Like, you don't really see that very often, but yeah, it was cool. So yeah, there, there were layers of fossils, but they were pretty sparse. So trace fossils, such as burrows, they might be locally abundant in some of these shallow marine environments as well. The, these quartz aronites make up roughly about one third of all the sandstones and that they can originate as first cycle deposits derived from uh, basically primary crystalline or metamorphic rocks. But they are more likely to be the product of multiple recyclings of quartz grains from sedimentary source rocks. If they're first cycle deposits, they, they must have formed under conditions that are really vigorous so that the grains chemically less stable than quartz were eliminated. So I guess you would, I guess it could be conceivable to find such environments in hot, humid areas with low relief weathering conditions allowing for pronounced chemical leaching. Or like prolonged wind transport or it like intensive reworking of surf zone deposits. I mean, yeah. that would, that would make sense with that, especially in the surf zone with that back and forth rolling and Right. I think, yeah. I think therefore I am, but yeah, so we, we see a lot of quartz aronites in the, in the rock record, especially in the Mesozoic and Paleozoic stratigraphic successions. And some, I guess, more practical examples that come to mind are the, the, like the Ordovician St. Peter sandstone. Uh, we can yeah. see the, the Navajo sandstone of the Colorado plateau deposited in the Jurassic. Yeah. And don't forget about the Dakota sandstone. I'm actually working with some of those right now, nice. um, but that Dakota group, yeah, it was deposited in the Cretaceous and and then also during the Ordovician, there was the Eureka quartzite that was found in parts of Nevada and California. See, like, and then that's that's awesome that you're that you're actually working on one of the sandstones that we're talking about in this episode. Yeah. 
It's pretty cool. <laughs> well, then, um, yeah, yeah. and then so the the feldspathic aronites, which are going to be composed of less than ninety percent quartz, that have more feldspars than unstable rock fragments, and contain minor amounts of other minerals such as your micas and heavy minerals. So there's that distinction. Both yeah. sides are going to be less than ninety percent quartz, but it's going to be predominantly feldspars on one end, and the other is the lithics. Yeah, it's, some of the sandstones are going to be pink in color due to the abundance of the potassium feldspar. Or the iron oxide can also do that. While others are going to be like a light gray to white. Yeah. Feldspathic aronites, they're typically medium to coarse grained and they may contain high percentages of subangular to angular grains. Thus, we can characterize them as texturally immature or submature. That is, like if they are wax, yeah. basically. Interesting about these sandstones is they're not uh, characterized by any particular kind of sedimentary structures. I find that, so I do find bedding, that interesting. Yeah, yeah that, to me it is also, and I mean, I guess that's where our depositional environments come from, but yeah. so bedding can range from essentially structuralist, which just still blows my mind a little bit, to parallel laminated or cross-laminated. And fossils, they may be present if in a marine environment. And then they, they typically are going to occur in cratonic or stable shelf settings where they're maybe associated with conglomerates or shallow water quartz aronites or lithic aronites. And then they're, I guess, really less typical do they occur in sedimentary successions that are or were deposited in unstable basins or other deep water mobile belt settings. So the abundance in the rock record is not really well established from my understanding. And then some formations of the feldspathic sandstones are actually going to form in situ when granite and related rocks disintegrate to produce a granular sediment called grus. Do you, how do you say that? Do you say grus? Grus? I say grus. Grus? I mean, I mean, Bruce. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. so the, it's basically the the residual arcosic material may be shifted a short distance down slope and deposited as fans or aprons of waste material, or we can call them or think of them as clastic wedges. Yeah, the the fan deposits they can actually extend into basins and become interbedded with better stratified and better sorted sediment. Other feldspathic aronites undergo considerable transport. So they're reworked by rivers or the, the sea before they're deposited. And they're commonly going to contain less feldspar than do the residual arcoses, and they're going to be better sorted. I know this is kind of like off topic, but back to the grues. It, it, what it reminds me of really is like if, you, if you've ever been to Pikes Peak and just all that granite yeah. that is just like, I guess I never realized because I think of granite countertops, but granite is super weatherable and it like breaks yeah. down like super easily, it seems like, right? Yeah. And, and that's also like it. We, said earlier like during initial like first cycle like it doesn't break into big chunks of granite like it separates around around the contact of the feldspar and corpse and all that it's it's really weird because i would have thought oh well it's really durable but i mean once exposed for a while to the yeah. elements it's, it's it, gonna just start disintegrating it's a see ya <laughs> i'm just yeah. gonna go do my own thing each individual mineral but yeah so they're they're <laughs> they're going to be derived mainly from or i guess the the feldspathic are going to be mainly derived from granitic type primary crystalline rocks such as your coarse granite and metasomatic uh, rocks containing abundant potassium feldspars. Sandstones that contain abundant plagioclase or plagioclase uh, are typically derived from igneous rocks such as your quartz diorites or from your volcanic rocks. Mm -hmm. And the preservation of the large quantities of feldspars during weathering appears to require by a couple of things, either by one, in a very cold or very arid environment, so where chemical processes are inhibited uh -huh. or limited, 
or in warmer, more humid climates where oh. marked relief or a low left arouse. Arouse. The uplift arouses rapidly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, or uh, in warmer, more humid climates where marked relief of local uplift allows rapid erosion of feldspars before they can be decomposed. Yeah, so less likely is the feldspar going to be derived from a sedimentary source rock during recycling. Some common successions of note are the old red sandstones that are carboniferous in age found in Scotland, and then the Triassic uh, Newark group in New Jersey and the Swak Formation of Washington that is, uh, I guess, more recent in the Paleocene. Like, I, I feel like I've read about the old red sandstones and like that's the place I really want to visit over there in Scotland. So maybe we can go. I don't yeah, know. I need so. to <laughs> I'm gonna make an alter ego band called the Old Red Sandstones. That'd be perfect. So we should move on to the last principle sandstone, and that's going to be what we're going to call the lithic aronite. And they're extremely diverse, characterized by generally high content of unstable rock fragments such as volcanic and metamorphic class. And they're differentiated from feldspathic aronites in that they contain more unstable rock fragments than the feldspars, but they're still have less than 90% quartz. Yeah, right. So the, the, the quartz grains and many other framework grains are generally poorly rounded and tend to contain substantial amounts of matrix, much of which may be of secondary origin. So these sandstones are thus going to be texturally immature to submature, and they can range from irregularly bedded, laterally restricted cross stratified fluvial units to evenly bedded, laterally extensive graded marine turbidite units. They can also occur in man i cannot speak today <laughs> they can also occur in association with fluvial conglomerates in other fluvial deposits or in association with deeper marine conglomerates pelagic shales chirps and submarine basalt lithic aronites include sandstones that many geologists continue to refer to as gray wax. These rocks differ from quote-unquote normal lithic aronites in that they are dark gray to dark green and are well indurated or lithified and commonly have a matrix of the secondary chlorite. The term, again, is used, I think, pretty loosely, much like shale, that it, it might be best to simply drop it all together. But anyways, compositionally, lithic aronites are going to be immature sandstones that originate under conditions favoring the production and deposition of large volumes of relative unstable materials. They The, the mechanically weak character of many of the lithic fragments in these sandstones suggests that they are probably derived from rugged, high-relief source areas. They can be deposited in non-marine settings, in proximal alluvial fans, or other alluvial environments. They may also be deposited in like marine foreland basins, okay. adjacent fold thrust belts, or they may be transported by large rivers off the continent into deltas or shallow shelf environments. Lithic sediments deposited in coastal areas may be transported into deeper water by turbidity currents or by other sedimentary or just sediment gravity flow mechanisms and are likely to undergo deep burial in incipient metamorphism leading to the development of characteristics generally ascribed to ta-da, what they're really <laughs> into gray wax. <laughs> <laughs> Some common lithic aronites include the Jurassic Franciscan formation in California, uh, the Pennsylvanian Pottsville formation, and the Cretaceous Belly River sandstones of Canada. Nice. Uh, some, yeah, some honorable mentions. 
in the sandstones we can just briefly discuss are the volcanic clastic sandstones. These are special types of lithic sandstones composed primarily of volcanic detritus. Detritus. Yeah, so the these these volcanoclastic <laughs> volcanoclastic sandstones may be made up of largely pyroclastic materials that have been transported and reworked, and or they may even contain volcanic detritus derived by weathering of older volcanic rocks. And then they mm-hmm. they are especially characterized by the presence of euhedral feldspars, pumice fragments, and glass shards, or volcanic rock fragments that are generally going to have. Uh, a relatively low quartz content. Even rarer are the green sands, <laughs> which are the glauconitic sands. Um, that's where they get their colors from, the glauconite. Yeah, um, yeah or I guess the phosphatic sandstones, um, and then also the calcareous sandstones composed of sand-sized carbonate grains, like Ooids, yeah, and but these <laughs> rocks are not true sandstones in that they are not silicoclastic rocks. Rather, they are chemical slash biochemical sedimentary rocks. Uh, good point. Um, <laughs> hopefully, next episode we can continue this discussion with the silicoclastics and talk about the conglomerates and shales, and then finally get to that that fancy word of the diagenesis of the silicoclastic sediments. <laughs> I think that sounds like a plan. All right. Well, then let's close things out with a little. Okay. Oh, no. We... Oh, did I hear a little? No. Yeah, because we picked one of ours. Uh, I think are going to coincide. Okay. <laughs> but, well, no, that that's, that's absolutely fine. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. okay. So what we wanted to briefly talk to you about this uh, version of that freaking rocks are some overrated bands, and I want to begin with one of my favorite all time bands. But after their second album, they they've they've really been sparing me to death. I'm pretty sure they've been sparing the most of uh, their listeners to death. And for the just, I guess, the better part of 20 years. And the band I present to you, my friend, is Weezer. <laughs> I'm really surprised to hear you say that. But I guess it, it really does make sense. Like, yeah, like since really for me, since Blue Album, I just haven't been into them as much, um, if at all. Yeah, but no. It, Blue I, Album and Pinkerton. Yeah, Blue Album and Pinkerton. And I, and, I, and I don't know if it really has something to do with them losing their the, the bass player after Pinkerton or whether, I guess, Rivers Cuomo, I guess he didn't like the reception of Pinkerton. And I don't know. Everything since then has been like, I feel like overproduced and just so sellout oh, yeah. sellouty. I don't know. There's been yeah. a few songs here and there, but for the majority, I think Weezer overall, even though they're one of my favorite bands of the first two albums, <laughs> after that, yeah, they they're on my list of overrated bands. So yeah, okay, so I'll, I'll say one. You may not agree with it. So like thinking back to like the uh, like post hardcore scene, like post punk kind of stuff, I was really into a lot of that stuff, and I didn't even mind the screaming stuff. I love that. But a band that I could never get into, that I was like, why? I don't get it. Is Senses Fail? Senses, I just, oh, I could not get it. I was there terrible live, and everyone's like, Oh, their shows are so awesome! Like, high energy. I'm like, Over here, yawning in the back because I'm just they're off, their songs all sound the same, and like, they're just the image of them as like this super 
emo, like, I don't know, like, I don't want to hear about you just cutting your wrists and stuff like, yeah. like, <laughs> like reference, but, but Mrs. Dale did the same thing in my head. It was just yeah. so I, cringy. I, yeah, I get it. I don't know uh, if it was because I, I associate the, the album, Let It Enfold You. And that's really yeah. the only album that I ever listened to them. So I can't speak to them on a whole, but I feel like it's just some of those uh, lady in a blue dress. And then the one that I like is New Jersey or NJ falls into the Atlantic. And I'm going to send it to you after this, but it's like, okay. I mean, I, I basically listen to like two or three songs. So I, I don't think I can make a accurate assessment of them as a whole, but <laughs> I believe you. Senses fail. You yeah. are on our list of overrated you bands. Are on, yeah. So I mean, like, if I could admit that one of my favorite bands is overrated, then I can agree with you that senses fail. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I present to you my second spare band that just it's I, I it overrated. It's Metallica, and this this <laughs> this band spares me mine. to no end. Like I can't, uh, I I just can't. Anything Metallica, I'm just like nope. <laughs> I guess I it's good. I don't know. If you go into Guitar Center, it's just like, do, 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 do. It's the worst. And I don't I care. Can't stand it. Yeah. If any of y'all are out there listening and you like Metallica, quit lying to yourself. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, it's not only just the, the music, which I don't like the music. But I'll be on, like, so Metallica is number two on my, my overrated band. It's also their persona that I yeah. cannot, like Lars. You're a douchebag, yeah. uh, and like James Hetfield, like you sound like a douchebag. <laughs> at least what you think. So like, I can't take them seriously. I don't know what it is. I just I don't like it. I don't know. Yeah, no, I I, I mean like I'm not particularly a fan of the music, and then I'll just. Uh go ahead and throw this out there. I know I didn't put it in here, but just Zach Wilde overrated. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, mean yeah. I feel like it's along that, <laughs> that, that genre, but um, my last man yeah. that I, that I present, I was just throwing that out there because it just came to mind. I'm just like, God, that dude spares me to death too with the pinch harmonics <laughs> and just like oh, all the time yeah. and his flowy hair. And like, I don't know. And then they try to play s like slower music and I'm just like, stop, like stop. And Anyways. His ugly less tall. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so lastly, I present to you probably my least liked band of all time. And I, and, and I don't know what it is about them. It's just, it's the band U2. Like they can <laughs> choke on a fat wiener too. Like I did, dude, it's all the same. It, it just, so I mean, to me, they're like, they're like, <laughs> yeah. So like it, all of their music, it just seems like it's, uh, it, it an anthem and it, they're, they're just doing it like you know what i'm saying it's like when a band yeah. just like hey we're doing this just to be famous like we don't care about the music we're just and yeah. like in bono like dude he wears <laughs> i know that they do a lot of humanitarian work but like, yeah, yeah get over yourselves <laughs> get off the stage. god i can't yeah. I, I can't and then and then and one of the things that pissed me off the most is when i guess they partnered with apple and then like a whole oh, entire god. album like got yeah downloaded to my itunes that just like i can't yes. get rid of it <laughs> well and like you'll plug your phone in like usb in your car and yeah. then like all of a sudden you two start playing yeah, I'm like, like, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah so if you're a fan of you two just <laughs> get out shut up <laughs> my last one is not technically a band but i can't stand this guy and i don't i feel like he's extremely overrated because he's so popular and that is ed sheeran oh. i hate you ed sheeran no i don't hate you <laughs> it's I hate the red hair 
very much. Yeah, the ginger. I guess. So like, I honestly hate hate his music so much, and he was a disgrace to Middle Earth because oh. he wrote a terrible song called I See Fire or something really lame. And it was it was about Schmaug, but it was like the worst song ever written. So it's like, why did you put this in the Hobbit movie? Which those were terrible too. But uh, <laughs> we can talk about that another time maybe. But okay, Ed Sheeran is my uh, most overrated I like, uh, artist of all time. I like, we need to bring this back. It, it's fun just calling out, calling it is what it is, right? <laughs> just, yeah. <laughs> eventually yeah. it was like all bands. You're overrated, man. <laughs> But hey, you know what we forgot to do? And I know it's the end of the episode, but cheers, man. Here's to another episode. Cheers. There we go. On the rocks. So that's been a, I guess that's going to uh, close things out over here. So um, again, if you made it this far, thank you again for listening to our podcast. As we close things out, I would like to remember, I I would like everyone (laughs) to remember to be cool. Stay tuned. And keep it on on the the rocks. rocks. Hey, we got it. (laughs) Man. Sandstones. Yeah. Man, the silly plastics. Woo! (laughs) Wax on. Wacky, wacky. (laughs) Waka, waka.